Dear Prudence. 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 Dear Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio today is no one. With me in the studio today is nothing. With me in the studio today is my own and solitary self. There is nothing standing between me and my loneliness. Um, I am as alone as I was when I was born, as alone as I will be when I die, as alone as we all, in fact, truly are. There is no veneer protecting me this week convincing myself that I exist in community instead of alone, wandering, adrift. It's just me here, and it's just you. Let's do this. I come to you all first as the type of person uh, who saw this weekend King Arthur in 3D. That's right. I'm one of the 29 people in America who saw this movie. It cost $175 million to make and has, I believe thus far, made $14 million. Uh, at least 20 of those dollars are for me, um, and I made someone go see it who had absolutely no intention of seeing it, so I, I would like Guy Ritchie at some point to personally write me a thank you note. Um, I love all 3D movies, and I love any movie that's set before the year 1000. Like, the farther back a movie is set, the more I love it. This is why one of my favorite movies of all time was the was the movie 10,000 BC. And I know you're thinking that I'm thinking of 1 million years BC with Raquel Welch. That's not true. I'm thinking of the much worse 10,000 BC, which came out in 2009 and starred Camilla Bell. Um, I, I, I cannot explain it. Like, the best movies uh, in my mind are just set with cave people in three dimensions. So, like, Pompeii 3D, I saw twice. Uh, I will absolutely see King Arthur 3D again. It it was the most nonsensical thing I've ever seen, um, and that includes other Guy Ritchie movies. Um, but I just want to take a moment to address what I think... Jude Law is doing right now. And what I think Jude, because Jude Law obviously is in it, he plays Vortigern, because if you're at all familiar with the King Arthur legend, um, I know that like me, you thought, man, you know what King Arthur stories need is more Vortigern, the king who barely shows up at the beginning of the story to yell at Merlin and then disappears forever. Um, We really need a movie that just explores the space with that guy. Um, And luckily this movie does. And it was so much fun to watch him because all I could think of was that terrible, wonderful show he's on right now, The Young Pope, um, and just like how the whole point of The Young Pope is literally just like, it's me, I'm the Pope, but I'm young. Does that blow your mind or what? Even though he is like statistically average age for a Pope. Uh, But that's besides the point. The point is, I I think Jude Law thinks that right now he's pulling a Charlize Theron. Like, I think that's where he thinks his career is going. And, like, Lord bless him. I hope he's right. Like, he thinks the the young pope is his, like, big prestige thing. I think he's really excited that his hairline is receding a tiny bit. So he's no longer, like, so beautiful that to look at him is to die. Um, And I think he thought this was going to be his, like, Snow White and the Huntsman, which was a movie that, like, did pretty well. Um, And generally, everyone sort of loved Charlize in it. They were like, it's a pretty goofy film. But, like, she seems to be having a great time chewing up all the scenery, looking amazing, just being an all-around, like, bitch goddess. And I feel like Jude Law really wanted to be a bitch goddess in this movie. Um, uh, Time will tell whether or not he succeeded, but it was just really fun watching him and thinking of him just like in his trailer at the end of of every shooting day, just being like, but do you think that I channeled Charlize? Like, do you think that I had her energy? Do you think there's something more I could do tomorrow? And everyone just be like, no, man, you did great. You did did great. Um, And and I guess that's just what I want to leave you all with today. I think Jude Law's doing his best. And so are all of we. Our first question today is not so much a question, but at long last, uh, a reply to my question, you know, are there women out there who kind of habitually don't brush their teeth? For those of you who aren't familiar, I get uh, not infrequently asked um, questions by people who are in relationships with men where the men do not regularly brush or floss their teeth. There's not some sort of, like, medical issue going on. There's no sort of dentistry-related trauma that might be holding them back. They're just sort of indifferent about dental hygiene, and the partner in question has said, like, please go to the dentist. Please brush your teeth. I don't want to kiss you. It's unhealthy. I'm worried about your well-being. And they're just sort of like, eh, I don't feel like it. And so I've been really curious, like, are there women out there who do this too? And and so far, the answer seems to have been no, but we we have at last heard from one of them. 
as you know, I am alone in the studio. And so our producer, our producer, my producer, this is not a royal we situation. Uh, Audrey is going to be reading all the letters so that you are not stuck listening to me and only me for the next 45 minutes to an hour. So those are the the tones that you will be hearing. Do not be surprised. Um, I have not lied to you and snuck a guest in at the last minute. Dear Prudence, I am a wife who has bad brushing habits. I'm in my early 20s and I'll be the first to admit that I brush probably twice a week at best. It's usually less. Gross, I know, but there it is. The reason it's so hard for me is because it was never pushed in my house as a child. We were day of the dentist brushers and that's about it. This may be a common thread. The solution will be harder as it requires a desire to change a habit before there can be any change. I'd say therapy or a printout about the side effects of poor dental health would be the most likely solutions. But perhaps, Prudy, you have some other ideas. For me, knowing that my teeth will fall out of my head if I don't do something about it has been a good way to galvanize me. Uh, and I think, first of all, good for you, letter writer. Like the clearly, the biggest sort of hurdle in between um, the the people who I get uh, written about uh, and and going to the dentist and brushing your teeth is the desire to do so. So the fact that you want to do something different is a great sign. Uh, another thing that's great is brushing your teeth does not take very much time. It's not like building a new habit, like going to the gym every day where you have to like put on a new outfit and drive somewhere and pay a sign-up fee and like take a couple of hours out of your day. Um, you can you can just start doing it in your own home, and that's fantastic. And um, when it comes to adding a new habit, like there's kind of a lot of different ways that can make it likelier to stick. One is to automate it. So I think uh, if you can set an alarm on your phone, if you're the kind of person who responds to those um, at the same time every day, uh, that just reminds you to brush your teeth and sets a timer for like a full two minutes um, so that you don't really have to think about it so much, like to set up a little toothbrushing station in your bathroom. So you just reach for it and go. There's no sort of like hunting around for like, where did I put the toothbrush last week? Um, that can be really, really helpful. Uh, you know, there's sort of there, there's a lot of stuff out there. You can sort of do research about like habit changes. Uh, I, I think there's a sort of like acronym that's very popular, which is like SMART, which is that your resolution has to be specific, measurable, have a reward and, and be trackable. I guess there's no A in it. Maybe there's an A and I just forgot it. Um, but yeah, basically, you kind of already have all of those goals met, which is great. Um, it's like a small habit. Um, and if you automate it, um, if you're kind of tracking your progress, uh, generally it seems like around 90 days is when a habit sort of shifts from something you have to think a lot about to something that feels like a part of your everyday natural life. Um, then it doesn't really require a lot of self-control or like internal debate. You can just go for it. Um, and that's fantastic. So start small. Just try to brush twice a day. You don't need to throw flossing at yourself just yet. Like get 90 days of teeth brushing in and like maybe do a little reward for yourself and then start adding floss in later. Um, and you can maybe do something fun, like play a few minutes of a podcast or watch a few minutes of a show that you like or whatever it is that you sort of enjoy to sort of incentivize yourself. Um, and, you know, you can like tell your partner, uh, tell other people in your life, like, obviously, it's kind of a personal thing to discuss with other people. So if you don't feel comfortable saying to your friends, like, I'm finally going to start brushing my teeth regularly, you don't have to. Um, but sort of have somebody who is like there for you, excited to help you chart your progress. Um yeah. And congratulations. I just think this is something really good for you. Uh, you know, you're still young. You're in your early 20s. Um, this will be good for you over the course of your life. Um, it will it will keep your dentist bills down. It will help your, you know, heart health. Uh, you're you're going to be glad you did it. You will have fewer cavities and good for you. And thank you for writing in. Congratulations. Write us back, by the way, in 90 days and let us know how it's going. I'm serious. I really want to hear from you again, letter writer. Like, good for you. Awesome. Fabulous. So, our first question of the day is about when to ask for exclusivity in dating. Dear Prudence, I recently have started dating only doctors or guys in med school. I started this habit after going on date after date with scrubs. I've never dated a ton, but I know I like a motivated and smart guy, so this assures at least that. At the age of 25, I've risen to the top of my field and have a lot of successes, so I want someone to keep up with me. God, that sounds vain, I know, but you should see some of the men I've gone on dates with. My problem is the doctors I've gone out with all have busy schedules. I'm fine with this, but I do want some sort of commitment. Can I make it clear to them that while I want exclusivity, I don't necessarily want more time commitment without scaring them off? Just a relationship without stress, but also without the worry of him dating other people. Is that even possible? 
I just need you all to know, by the way, I had to read this, I think, four times before I realized that when they said they'd been going on date after date with Scrubs, they meant it like in terms of the TLC song, No Scrubs, and not guys wearing Scrubs, because this question is all about doctors and medical professionals. So I was like, you were accidentally going on dates with a lot of doctors wearing scrubs and you liked it so much you decided to make it a policy? Like, this just confused me a lot. It really threw me for a loop. So they were going out with, this letter writer was going out with a lot of guys who were just no good. uh, And now they have this doctor policy, which is fine. Uh, You know, certainly there are smart and motivated people who did not go to medical school, but if if it's really important to you to date a lot of doctors or or soon to be doctors, like that is a thing you can do as a human being. Um, I you know I, I salute you. I hope you are looking for some other attributes as well. But fine, great. Like this is a policy that you can have. Um, yeah, one of the trade offs of dating people in medical school is that they are incredibly busy, and many of them. Uh, may not be looking for a relationship, even if you were to assure them um, that you would only need, you know, an hour of their time a week, Um, which is also fine. It's also fine to know that, like, what I want is to date with an eye towards exclusivity and commitment, uh, but not necessarily someone who I'm going to see six nights of the week or even four nights of the week. um, and, And that's what I want. That might be a little tricky, like, between being a doctor or in medical school, wanting exclusivity, and only wanting to see you once or twice a week, um, it's definitely what you're asking for is specific, but I think possible. Um, and I think you should just let them know up front. Um, you know, you don't have to say this on the very first date, uh, but you should absolutely say, uh, you know, ideally, I would love to meet somebody that I could be an exclusive relationship with. And ideally, we'd see each other once or twice a week. Um, that's it. That's all you have to say. Uh, if the guys that you say this to don't want that, then there's not like a better way you can frame it so that they will instead want the thing you want. It just means they're not looking for what you're looking for. Uh, And some people will probably hear that and think, you say you don't really want a lot of my time, but if you want exclusivity, I'll feel bad if I'm not giving it to you. So it might not work for them. Um, But I think the most effective way to get what you're asking for is to just state it pretty, pretty frankly. Um, and, you know, good luck finding the low-key, exclusive doctor boyfriend of your dreams. This next one is, oh, I like these. These are just nice and simple answers. Uh, this next one I, I have, I think, like a two-word answer for. The subject line is just to cut or not to cut. Dear Prudence, I have a crazy neighbor. His house is falling down around him. Birds and woodland creatures make homes in the holes in his siding. Vines grow through his roof. I've only seen him five or six times in the last 10 years, but any polite hello I have offered has been shot down. That said, he's quiet, leaves me alone, and I'm happy to leave him to his life. He's a fine neighbor in my book. However, one of the trees on his side of our property line died about five years ago. It recently started leaning on the fence between our yards. I tried pushing it away, but it won't fall into his overgrown yard. Can I just cut it down at the fence line? It will fall into my yard and I'm happy to deal with it. He'll just be left with the fence height stump on his side. His backyard is a jungle of vines and overgrowth that he has never even entered, so I'm sure he wouldn't notice. I know I should go talk to him and get permission, but one, he's made it very clear that I should not talk to him, and two, it's a dead tree, dead for five years. Am I morally in the clear to chop that sucker down? Uh, don't worry about morality. Worry about city laws. Call 311. 311 in most cities is the non-emergency line uh, for city services. Uh, and there you can speak to someone at like city planning and say, am I allowed to cut down this dead tree that is starting to fall across my fence? And depending on the city you live in, they will either say, yes, you do not need permission, cut with glee, uh, or they will say, yes, but you're going to need a permit. Uh, and then you can get a permit or they'll say, no, you need written permission. And then you You'll have to go get that. Some trees are protected trees, and even if they are dead or dying or falling down, um, you are not allowed to cut them down without contacting the city first. So uh, don't worry about your neighbor just yet. Call your city's non-emergency line. Find out what you have to do in order to not get in trouble uh, to cut down this tree, and then go ahead and do it. Cut it down. Have a great time. Have like a tree cutting down party. You have waited five years. Uh, Make the call. Figure out what you need to do. Don't worry about morality. Just worry about getting in trouble with the city which is not something I ever want for any of you. We've got another one about dating. Dear Prudence, 
I'm a 30-year-old single female who has just entered the dating world for the first time in seven years. I feel like I've emerged from a time capsule into a world I don't exactly understand. I would like to find a solid, lasting relationship, but this whole dating thing is beyond me. What are the norms? Sleeping with somebody on the first date? Is that an instant blacklist situation where a man will no longer take you seriously? Seems a little sexist if so. Or, in the age of constant communication and social media, how much is either too much or too little texting? Does a text only once every couple of days imply disinterest? How often, as busy professionals with existing work and social lives, should somebody be trying to make plans to see you? Are men always expected to pay? I consider myself an attractive, successful, down-to-earth, and interesting woman, but the advice I get about red flags seems old-fashioned. That men should be pursuing and trying to charm women with expensive dinners and elaborate dates? I don't need a lot of fanfare from men. I'm laid back and essentially enjoy just good conversation and red wine. However, I don't want to be so laid back that I end up being disrespected or reading too much into it. He's just not that into you situation. I'm struggling to walk this line. Well, letter writer, I think I can say with reasonable confidence that you do not live in the Bay Area because I am trying to imagine a world where people say to one another things like, Men should be buying women expensive dinners. Um, and I, I'm sure that still exists. Like, I'm sure that's actually, like, kind of a norm in parts of the country still. Um, but I just, yeah, I bet you don't live in Oakland, um, which maybe you should move. Come here. Uh, all anyone here wants to do is casually get burritos uh, and be in bed by 11 p.m. It's pretty great. Unless you don't like that sort of thing, in which case I imagine it's very, very frustrating. Uh, man, so... Some of what you are looking to do, I think I have some expertise on. Some of it, I have no idea. Um, If you're the kind of person who likes to read books about relationships, I think a year or two ago, uh, Aziz Ansari, the the comedian, the actor, wrote a book with a sociologist called Modern Love uh, that I I remember being a lot about the sort of things you brought up of like, what's the deal with texting? Um, And it, it was like a fairly funny, but also well-researched book, you may find it help, uh, helpful and comforting. Um, I, I was, by the way, like, I was I was ready to laugh a little bit about the seven years thing, and then I remembered, like, Tinder came out in 2012. So, like, the last time you were dating people, uh, there were not, like, dating apps on people's phones. And that's a pretty big jump. Like, that was a definite shift, even from, like, the, you know, w- when you were last dating in 2010, like, OkCupid was definitely a thing, and um, a lot of dating sites were really successful, but there wasn't quite that same sense of, like, everyone's on your phone. So there is a a shift. Some of this is just you were in a relationship for seven years, and so you're just going to feel weird because dating is different from being in a relationship. So some of this you you need to just accept is going to be a part of the next phase of your life. Um, There are places and people uh, wherein sleeping with someone on the first date is super normal. Um, and there are places and people where it is not. Um, I, I'm afraid I don't have like one size fits all advice for you in my own circles. I don't know anyone who would say if they slept with someone on the first date that that meant they would not consider dating them. Um, but that's not to say there aren't people who might feel that way. So I think the best advice I would have for you is just ask yourself if you would like to sleep with this person on your first date. And if the answer is yes, you know, go with God. And if the answer is, I'm not sure, wait a little while. You can always have sex later. Sex can be eternally postponed. There's literally no reason you can't just have sex the next time you see someone. So you can kind of put it off as long as you want to. Uh, Again, I'm sure there are some men who sleep with someone on the first date and then think, now she is not serious, but I can't really imagine what that kind of person must be like. Can't really imagine wanting to date them. Maybe they have other great qualities. Yeah, I, I would say don't worry too much about that. Um, there is such a thing as too much texting. There is also such a thing as too little texting. Again, your mileage may vary. If somebody texted me once every couple of days and we had started dating each other, I would assume they hated me and I would run away to the moon. That's just me. I'm a delicate hothouse flower. I require a fair amount of attention. Uh if you feel happy about the amount of person is texting you, that's great. If whenever you text them, uh, especially about the possibility of spending time together and they kind of vanish for 24 hours, it's not a great sign. And I don't think you should work too hard to excuse it. Like, I think generally we know if someone seems excited about us, 
And that doesn't always mean that they're banging down our door, uh, you know, at midnight. But um, if someone seems generally enthusiastic about talking to you uh, and about seeing you, you know, within a reasonable time frame of your last date, uh, whether they choose to do so via the medium of texting or some other form of communication, that's great. Um, are men expected to always pay? No. I mean, no. I, I, I don't even think among, like, exclusively heterosexual kind of old-fashioned people there's still an expectation that a guy should always pay. I think at most you'll see someone who says, you know, I kind of like it on the first couple of dates if the guy at least offers to pay. But I think you should not go into a dating situation unless you know someone to be pretty old fashioned, assuming someone's going to pay for you. I think you should always bring enough money to cover your share of the bill um, and you should always offer to pay and you should always offer to pay in good faith. So I, I don't think you should do the sort of, oh, can I uh, can I help with a check in that kind of tone of voice that's like meant to let somebody know, do not take me up on this. If you do, you will have failed a test. Um, generally, I think the best rule uh, is just whoever did the inviting should treat. And uh, it's kind of nice to to treat somebody and to be treated. Um, but it's also fine to, to go Dutch a lot of the time. Um, if it's really important to you to meet a guy who, at least in the beginning, will offer to pay more often than you do, you know, that's fine. That's fine to look for. I don't think that's like evil, but just be aware that that's not really common. I, I, I genuinely don't think it's super common for like a guy to always pay. Um, and so I don't want you to think that if you're seeing a guy you otherwise like who is not offering to buy you everything, uh, that he is actually a jerk or somehow disrespectful. I don't think that that's the case. You know, yeah, it does sound like the advice about red flags you're getting are old fashioned, that uh, guys should always be pursuing and trying to charm you with really elaborate dates. Like, obviously, it's great when someone pursues you, right? It's great to feel like someone's excited to see you, um, that they care about, you know, getting to know you better, that they want to, like, you know, please you and see you have fun. That's fantastic. Um, but do you need to worry if you meet a guy and you really like him and he really likes you and he's not? racking his brains till 3 a.m. every night to figure out like what I don't know flash mob he can get started at a museum to parachute you to Brazil yeah like no um you're a human being trying to meet other human beings and uh, unless it's incredibly important to you that somebody always be like trying to keep you on your toes if somebody just wants to like go out to meals and take walks and watch movies and make out um that is fine that is not a problem so I guess that's the bulk of my advice. Uh, don't worry too much about who's doing the paying. Uh, sleep with someone when you want to and not before. Um, if somebody doesn't take you seriously after you have sex with them, that says something about what they think about having sex with them means, and you should probably not try to spend more time with them. Texting is great, but it's not everything. Uh, and um, do your best. Good luck out there. Have a great time. Maybe stop listening to your friends so much who, like, demand that men parachute in from the trees and throw champagne at your feet. Um, but, yeah, have a good time. Good luck. This one's just called What's in a Nickname? Dear Prudence, my mother is an ideal grandmother, save one thing. She insists on using a nickname for my son that I find jarring, a weird play on my beloved late father's nickname. My son was named to honor my father and greatly resembles him in appearance and personality. I worry her insistence on the nickname is a bridge too far, almost a way of framing him as Dad 2.0. I know the nickname didn't evolve naturally because she sat down with me to brainstorm nicknames that evoked my dad. I told her at the time I wasn't a fan. Family members have separately noticed that her choice and use of the nickname are odd and forced. My mom and I are close, and she's taking widowhood hard, so I don't want to argue over trivial things. But is this trivial? On one hand, it's just a nickname. On the other, it makes me cringe every time she uses it. This, I've kind of gone back and forth on this one because it feels, I, I'm not quite sure why the letter writer felt comfortable naming their son after their father, but find a nickname about their father to be a bridge too far. And maybe some of that just has to do with generally I find it a little weird when someone names a child 
after a parent. I think that's odd, but it's fine. People do it. Not everyone has to do things that I think are cool. Um, yeah, it, it is a little odd to say we can use the name we gave my son to honor my father, but not the nickname that you want to give him to honor my father. But it's also fine to be a little arbitrary about your kids. Like, I don't think that just because you chose to name your son after your father, that that means you are not allowed to object to the nickname your mother is giving him. Um, it It's definitely a little strange, but you're allowed to be a little strange. And um, it sounds like the problem was uh, the last time you had that conversation with your mom where she was, like, going out of her way to sort of, like, concoct a nickname, right? It wasn't something that sort of evolved naturally. She was like, got to come up with a nickname for your kid. Um, and she gave you a few that it sounds like were slightly torturous efforts to replicate a nickname she used for your father. Um, and you said that you weren't a fan which is not the same thing as, no, don't call my son that. So, you know, if it feels really important to you, if there's something about that nickname that just feels like inappropriate over-identification with your dead father, if it feels like it's, you know, like comorbid with sort of attempts to latch on to your grandson as a way of dealing with your grief, her grief in a way that feels inappropriate— yeah, you can have that conversation and you can say, you know, mom, the last time we talked about this nickname, I told you I wasn't a fan. I think I should have been clearer. Um, I don't like it. It makes me really uncomfortable. And I don't want you to call my son that anymore. Like, I'd rather you just use his name. And that's going to be a tough conversation. Um, you know, it's always harder to ask someone to stop doing something they're already doing. It's the sort of inverse of it's easier to ask forgiveness and permission. Like, it's always easier to say, please don't do this than, hey, I know that this has been going on for a while, but I, I want to ask you to stop. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you feel cringing every time you hear her say it, if other people uh, have brought it up to you that it feels weird, if you're worried that, you know, at some point, you know, your son may grow up and find out that was like a really specific nickname that your mother used for your father um, and might feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah, I think those are all appropriate reasons to say, please don't do that. Um, and I think you should, you know, definitely focus on doing it kindly. It doesn't sound like your mom's trying to transgress your boundaries or that she has a history of behaving inappropriately. It sounds more like this is coming out of a place of pain. Um, and also, possibly you were not quite clear enough the first time you guys talked about this and you told her not to do it. But um, yeah, you know, think about it. If you can't make your peace with this, if you can't reconcile yourself to it, if the idea of her calling your kid this for the rest of your kid's childhood um, just drives you up the wall, yeah, have that talk with her. Um, and, and, and really preface it with a lot of love and making it clear that you want to honor the memory of your father. That's part of why you named your son after him. Um, and and you want to be here for her and supportive for her. But just let her know um, it feels just too much to, to recreate that really specific special nickname. It makes you uncomfortable. That is a fair thing to do. I, I don't know. You know, she might cry. She might get really sad. Um, it's possible she, she'll want to disagree and you should be kind of prepared for those possibilities and kind of think through, you know, when you and your mom have had conflict in the past, historically what's worked, does she need a little time and space to think about it? Does it help to talk through everything? Does it help to give her alternatives? Uh, you know, you know your mother better than I do, but it doesn't sound like she's trying to be malicious. So I think there's a really good chance that if you bring this to her and you make it clear, you know, what's not working for you, you guys will be able to figure else, figure out something else. Um, and also, I'm just sorry. It just sounds like your mom's still going through a lot. Grief is awful and, and difficult, especially when it's your partner. And um, sometimes we do things that in other circumstances we would not ever consider doing. And it just might be hard and challenging for your mom to kind of let go of this particular uh, practice. But good luck. Guys, we got another letter about sperm donation. Dear Prudence, I've been with my boyfriend for about four years. We have a fantastic relationship, and we're in it for the long haul. Recently, he had dinner with a longtime friend who is a straight, single female. We're a gay couple. During the meal, she discussed her desire to have a child, with him as the known donor. He said he was open to this. They've apparently discussed it before, but never in any definite or serious terms. Afterward, he told me and asked what my thoughts were. I told him I was against it. I explained that beyond the legal risks and unclear nature of what his role would be in the child's life, I didn't like the idea of him having a child with somebody else while we're together, regardless of the arrangement. 
To me, it seems like an intimate commitment with another person and something I would obsess over. He was surprised I had such strong feelings against it. We discussed it at length, and he said that ultimately if I was still against it, he wouldn't do it. I don't see myself changing my mind on this, but I'm willing to discuss and get other perspectives. I think his friend is a wonderful person and probably low risk for any drama resulting from such an arrangement. Still, the idea that he's in a committed long-term relationship with me and would have a child with somebody else is unsettling to me. We'd like to have kids of our own eventually. I know that these arrangements exist and function, but am I being unreasonable? Any perspective would be helpful. I find it charmingly naive that your boyfriend was surprised you would have strong feelings about him having a child with someone else. Um... Having a child with someone is sort of one of the most personal things a person can do, Um, even if you are not in a romantic relationship with them and even if you are not going to be taking an active parenting role with them. It makes a lot of sense that your partner, uh, who knows you personally, would maybe have a strong opinion about such a personal choice. Um, Yeah, I I think it's fabulous that your boyfriend is talking about it with you and wants to take your view into account. Uh, I think you are right to feel a great deal of trepidation about it. There are a number of ways things can go really, really pear-shaped with known sperm donation. Um, That doesn't mean it's a bad idea 100% of the time or that no one has ever done it and found it meaningful and helpful and uplifting and profound. Um, But you run into a lot of... uh, higher risk areas than you do with going with a sperm donation from a clinic. Um, You know, as you yourself pointed out, there are a lot of legal risks. There's a lot of different ways that the situation can go wrong and pretty much just one way it can go right. Um, There is always a sense at the beginning of, well, we're friends and we care about each other. So obviously we'll just always talk it out and none of us will ever kind of go off the deep end and try to sue for child support or, uh, you know, demand custody of a child that we previously said we were really comfortable um, relinquishing our parental rights for. Like, again, there's just not to say that your boyfriend or his friend are about to do those things, just that those things happen um, and that it's a lot harder to sign away parental rights and responsibilities than you might think. And there are still a lot of ways in which people who said at the beginning, it's okay, I'll never need you for child support um, later, maybe lose a job or, um, you know, run into some difficulties and really, really need money to help raise the child and um, things change. So, yeah, I I think it's very, very reasonable for you to have the sort of standard issue concerns. I also feel pretty strongly that it's everyone's sort of right to make their own reproductive decisions uh, and that it is also a good idea if you want to stay in a relationship with someone that you see yourself with long term to take their opinion into consideration. Um, That doesn't mean you have to do the things that they want, um, but it does mean that I think it's really good to talk to and listen to one another. So if your boyfriend feels really comfortable saying, you know, if you, my partner, are against it because I am committed to spending my life with you because someday I want to have and raise children with you, um, if that would be a deal breaker for you, I will not do it. Um, and and I think that that's good. And I don't think that, you know, it's great that you're trying to consider all possible angles here, but especially since you two are considering um, having children of your own together someday, like, um, that would be a lot to say, yeah, we're going to have, you know, our kids will have half siblings um, that they may not be in contact with or, you know, that, that's a lot for me to think about. That would be hard for me to deal with. Um, and it doesn't mean that his friend will not be able to have children. Um you know, she does have a lot of options. Um, she could ask uh, an unattached person. If she wanted to go with a known sperm donor, she could go through a sperm donation clinic. Um, you know, she she does have other options. It's not like if your boyfriend does not give her his sperm, uh, that's her last chance to have a, a child, a, a biological child. So there's, there's that to bear in mind. Um, and he also, you know, he's not committed to anything. They've talked about this possibility before. Um, that's all they've done. They haven't signed a contract, which I can't imagine would be legally binding. Um, They haven't done anything, you know, that you can't take back. She's not already uh, pregnant. Um, They've just talked about the idea before and you've been with him for four years. You guys are building a life together. You're going to have a family of your own someday. Um, And if you just absolutely can't see yourself being comfortable with this, I think that's pretty appropriate to say. Um, And if your boyfriend is willing to not do it for the sake of preserving your relationship, then I think that is a fair thing to ask for. Um, 
And yeah, it doesn't mean that you hate his friend. It doesn't mean that you think she's going to turn into a monster. It just means that you're aware that this is a hugely fraught situation with a lot of different like legal and relational possibilities. Um, and it's not a risk that you're willing to run. Um, and, and you would prefer that he not do it. Um, so, you know, I, I would certainly also encourage you to do a little research about the risks of known sperm donation. Maybe consult a lawyer, not because you're about to hire somebody to defend you in court, but just to kind of get a sense of uh, how often do these situations go south and what do people do to protect themselves and does it work? And um, what are the ways in which this particular situation could sour uh, and what would that look like for us? Just Just so you feel like, oh, I did my research. Um, I know what's going on. But yes, at the end of the day, you have a right to say that you're not comfortable with this. And um, I think it's great that your boyfriend wants to make this decision as a unit because you two are a committed couple that plans on, you know, being together and and making your decisions with one another's input. So go ahead. Don't feel bad about this. If this is a deal breaker for you, if this is a hard limit you need to set, set it. Guys, this might be the cutest letter. I've ever gotten. It is adorable. I have reread it maybe 10 times. um, And I feel really enthusiastic because I think I'm going to be able to give this person helpful advice. The subject line of this one is just preparing little brother for going on the road. Dear Prudence, my little brother, 20, excitedly told me a couple of days ago that he and his friend who are aspiring rappers have a chance to go on a small tour with another local rapper. They just have to get so many likes on a social media post and get some merchandise ready to sell while on tour. This is all to be done by the end of this month, so it's a tight deadline. Though I was and am concerned about the possibility of this not panning out, I told him I'm thrilled he has this opportunity. I hope to impress upon him the need to watch out for himself so he doesn't end up stranded 100 miles from home. Then I found out he and his friend have never actually played their set on the stage in front of a crowd. As a musician myself, I know this obviously brings a whole different set of concerns to the forefront, such as, how do they know they can successfully perform a 20-minute set? What are they playing their beats through to amplify them? I worry they're just going to hook up a smartphone with a mic cable. What if they get on stage and their nerves get the better of them and they just freeze up? I feel like I have to point this all out to him, don't I? If so, how do I deal with the I've got this attitude that seems to permeate all that he does at this age? I just don't want him to get irreparably crushed if something goes wrong. Dear sweet letter writer, I just, I'm just, like, I love so much just this idea of someone really, really worrying about their little brother who's a rapper. Not even a rapper, an aspiring rapper. Um... Some of your concerns, I think, especially as a musician, are totally legitimate. Like, it is absolutely fine to ask your brother, what are you going to play your beats through to amplify it? Um, That's legitimate. You would maybe ask that of any young musician um, who is telling you about going on tour. But the rest of it, I mean, the good news is he will not be irreparably crushed if he performs a bad show, right? Like, Part of being a musician, part of being a live performer, part of being a rapper uh, is bombing and making mistakes. And um, none of those things have ever, like, ended a person's ability to go on in life. Um, So if your brother, who is 20 years old, makes some dumb decisions and has a bad show and maybe doesn't get to go on the rest of the tour and has to figure out how to get home from, I don't know, Des Moines, he can do that. And if this is his dream, you know, he will need to go through uh, a lot of difficult moments and moments where people push back or don't support him and he has to kind of learn as he goes um, and improvise and, uh, like, learn the value of stick-to-itiveness. I don't know. I'm talking like an old-timey grandfather. Um, but yeah, no, he. you do not have to ask him, what are you going to do if you freeze up on stage? Um, he'll have to figure that out. Like, if he does, people will probably boo him and he will probably feel terrible. Uh, and then, you know, something else will happen and then it will be the next day and then something else will happen and life will go on. Um, you can't kind of control for that. And I think some of your concerns, like you can absolutely say to him, this is really exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're going to like use to amplify your beats? Uh, because I know some people just try to hook up a smartphone and that doesn't work well. Um, and if he's receptive, fabulous. You've taught him something. And if he's not, great. He will maybe suck on the road and people will laugh or boo or just sort of 
not be impressed and he'll figure out that that didn't work and he'll do something else or he'll decide to quit and do something else. Um, All of which is totally okay. None of which involves being irreparably crushed. None of which is a life ruining proposition. None of which is something he couldn't recover from. So I would say 80% of this you can cheerfully let go of. Um, And then the 20% of, you know, specific questions of how to perform a 20 minute set you can absolutely ask him, and if his answers are bad uh, or or just you know poorly thought out, absolutely give him some advice. And if he doesn't take it, let him fail. Um, it will it will be useful to him. Twenties, twenty your twenties are a good time to to fail sometimes, uh, and this is an okay thing to fail at. And if he does get stranded, um, then he will get to figure out like where the nearest Greyhound bus station is, or. If he has any friends nearby that he can crash with or some other solution, Um, none of these are things that like he should be shielded from. I think all of these are things that if they happen, it's okay that it happens. And I know it's weird. Like my little brother is 27 and I still feel like he is a little bit 11 years old and that somebody should be walking him to the school bus. But that's not true. He doesn't even take a bus to school. He's a physicist at at a UC. And so he, I think, just just walks to class. Um, but, you know, he's he's not an 11-year-old boy. He is a grown man, and, and he does things all the time uh, that I have no control over. Uh, and it's the same thing with your brother. Your brother's either going to have a great time or a terrible time. Either way, he's going to learn a lot from it. Um, and, and, you know, probably when you were 20, you learned uh, some things about freezing up and, like, technical things that can go wrong on stage. And hopefully they made you a good musician now. I don't know. I've never heard you play. I hope you're good. Um, but this is something he's got to go through. So... You know, you can give him a little advice. You can check in a little bit. But I don't think you need to say like, hey, brother, what if you freeze up? What if you forget what music is on stage and everyone laughs at you? Um, That's just not something you can control for. Um, but yeah, just just don't worry. Just don't worry so much. I know that that sounds impossible. It's sort of like saying don't don't let gravity affect you. Um, of course, you're going to worry. You love your brother. You sound like a protective older sibling. But um, this is not going to ruin his life. If if he fails, it will be okay, um, and you will be okay. Uh, and that's I think the the thing that I want you to remember the most is just you're going to be fine. So the subject line of this one is: I bought my son's girlfriend a pregnancy test. Dear Prudence. My son is a senior in high school and has been seeing a girl for a few months. I like her a lot, but she's a little broken, aren't we all? A month ago, she snuck out of her house and was sexually assaulted by a friend. Three weeks later, she's afraid she's pregnant. It would not be my son's. My son confided in me what was going on. His girlfriend came with us to a family event the other night, and before I took her home, I bought her a pregnancy test. I gave her the choice of taking it at my house, but she opted to take it home. Yesterday, I received a text message from her mom. Did you buy my daughter a pregnancy test? I admit I hesitated before responding, but it's not like I bought her drugs or booze, so I responded with yes, I bought the test. Now I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I've bought them for a friend of my daughter's before as well. I don't feel I'm doing anything wrong, and I like that my kids can confide in me about this without being judgmental or disapproving. So why do I now feel guilty? Was there a better way to handle this? Oh, man. Um... So I want to start by saying I am not super up on laws state to state. I imagine if your son is a senior, it's possible that his girlfriend is also a senior. She may be 18. She may be 17, depending on what state you live in. Uh, You know, they may be considered legal adults. Um, I'm not aware of a state where it is illegal to buy a pregnancy test for a minor. Um, it's not like birth control or contraception. Um, it's, it's just a pregnancy test. Uh, so I, I, I don't believe that you could have gotten yourself into any legal trouble. Uh, although, again, I will freely remind everyone I'm not a lawyer. I'm not close to a lawyer. I've never even been inside of a law school. So um, you, you will want to do a little more research about that. Um, I don't think that you were wrong to buy this girl a pregnancy test. Um, you do say, you do ask, was there a better way to handle this? And and I think that there may have been. Um, I don't know if you guys also had a long and extensive conversation about her assault and how she's doing, but if you found out that she was sexually assaulted and your only response was to buy her a pregnancy test, um, then I think you failed uh, to demonstrate empathy and compassion in a pretty profound way to a young person who had just been sexually assaulted. So 
no, I don't fault you for getting her a pregnancy test. I think that that was probably a caring thing to do. It's important for her to know if that's something that she's afraid of. Um, but if you have not already, um, I-, I would suggest speaking to her again and just letting her know that you are here for her, um, that you care about her, that she did not deserve to be assaulted, um, and that if she would ever like help either reporting the assault um, or speaking to like a crisis counselor uh, or even like calling the national sexual assault hotline it's it's run by rain the rape abuse and incest national network um it's it's available 24 7 it's free it's confidential uh the number is 1-800-656-HOPE that's 1-800-656-H-O-P-E um, so that she can speak to someone who is trained in helping survivors of sexual violence um, I, I think that that is as important, more important than simply meeting her physical needs, like helping her figure out if she is or is not pregnant, but meeting her emotional needs, her needs for uh, justice, her need for care. Um, I, I hope that you have perhaps done this already and simply didn't mention it, but you, you know, if someone if you find out that someone has been sexually assaulted and all you do is say, here's a pregnancy test, um, you've missed an opportunity to help someone. Um, so uh, I think regardless of whether or not her mother gets mad at you, um, to let this girl know that you are here for her, that you are so sorry that this happened to her, and that if she would like to report it, um, if she would like to be put in touch with a crisis counselor or a therapist, if she would like to just speak with someone um, who can help her kind of figure out what she needs and how to process this, that, that you're there for her. Um, and, and be willing to back that up. I think that's just as important as being willing to buy somebody a pregnancy test. And um, I also hope um, that your son did not violate her confidence and trust in telling you this. Um, you know, it's kind of unclear in this letter what this girl thinks and feels about everything that's been happening around and to her. Um, and if she is okay with the fact that your son shared this information with you, that's all well and good. Um, uh, but I, I would check in with her and, and I would not share this information with other people. Consider this very confidential. Um, I, I hope your son was not just sort of um, telling you even after she had asked him not to. I hope both of you really can prioritize uh, what she wants and what she needs in this moment um, and not to try to push her to make one or another choice, but to let her know whatever she decides that she needs, you will support her in doing. Um, Yeah, I I think maybe the reason you feel guilty is not that some, that this girl's mom might get mad at you for buying a pregnancy test, but because you have incompletely and insufficiently responded to someone in pain. And I think that's where the guilt is coming from. And that doesn't make you a a monster. A lot of times we are surprised by our own responses to things like violence and assault and sexual violence. Um, And and we don't know what to do and we're taken aback. Um, But you have a real opportunity right now to correct that and to go back to her and and to really respond with compassion and attention and care and to really stress how awful what happened to her was um, and that you are here for her whatever she needs, Um, not just her physical needs, but her emotional and spiritual and and mental needs as well. Um, Regardless of whether or not you get in trouble with her mother. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if she told her mother about it. I don't know if um, her mother found the test. Again, there's like a lot we don't know about this girl's safety, both in her own home um, and and with her friends, um, how she's being treated, uh, whether or not she feels like she has sufficient confidentiality and privacy. Um, you'll know that better than me, but um, make sure she knows that you are... Um, going to keep her confidence if she shares things with you, um, that you're not looking to judge or restrict her options, um, and that you want to help and support her. And I think that's the most important thing that you can do. And I hope your son is doing that as well, um, because this is pretty huge and pretty awful. Um, Yeah. Um, I I I think there's more work to be done here, and I think that that will go a long way toward assuaging your guilt. Um, And I think there's more you need to do. And I hope that you are able to do it. Um, And I just wish that girl the best. And I hope that you're able to care for her meaningfully. Thanks. Now that I have heard 
from at least one woman uh, who has not regularly brushed her teeth as an adult but plans on changing. I have a new call. Although, please, again, feel free if you are another one of these women. I've only heard from one of you. I would love to hear from more. Um, I I, I, want to put out another call uh, for a question that I would like to have answered. One of the things that my uh, Tahila, Nicole Cliff, and I have always disagreed upon is where a person should sleep. I don't mean like on a bed or like in an eagle's nest. I mean uh, like the position a person takes when they fall asleep. She always thinks it's incredibly strange that I sleep on my back. I think she she has more than once referred to it as sleeping like a witch because I sleep. To me, what feels like the classic sleep position, which is like head on a pillow, back, arms at your sides. I don't know, corpse pose. Like just you sleep like you've just fallen down. Like, that's how you sleep. That's what sleeping is. I might occasionally, if I'm tossing and turning, hang out on my side for a few minutes, but I'm not going to fall asleep there. That's impossible. And I'm so curious because I I know apparently there are people who can sleep on their stomachs. Who are you? Are you witches? Are you wizards? What is it like? How do you fall asleep with your face smashed into a mass? Like, how how do you not suffocate? And if you turn your head to the side so that you can breathe, how how is it comfortable to sleep with your spine at a 90-degree angle all night? What do you—how? How do you do this thing? I, I, I genuinely do not understand how a human being can fall asleep in any position other than the position I fall asleep in, the correct position, the only way to sleep, the best way to sleep. Um, and I would like to hear from you. How do you do it? What does it feel like? Doesn't your nose get smashed into your brain? from putting it down? How? 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 I, can I come to your house and watch you sleep? That's weird. I realized as soon as I said it, that was weird. Do you all sleep on massage tables that have the little hole for your nose at the top? Um, uh, will you send me footage of you sleeping? Oh, that's still creepy. I'm sorry. Again, drawings. Here we go. Send me drawings of yourself sleeping uh, and, and a 100 words or less describing what it feels like and why it's wrong and why I'm right and you're going to stop immediately and start sleeping the way I do. Um, I'd like to thank you in advance, both for bearing with my creepiness and also for sending me these weird drawings. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location and at your request. We can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. 